So we're in a series. It's a four-part series. This is uh, not a narrative series. Um, by narrative series, I mean we've been going through the story and taking the story piece by piece as we've made our way through the story. Uh, this is a topical uh, series. We're looking at four images that the scripture offers us, uh, pictures that help us better understand the nature of our salvation, the nature of what Christ accomplished uh, on the cross on our behalf. So last week, Jonathan jumped into the first one, uh, which was propitiation, a big word. But the picture is, or the image is, the blood sacrifice on the altar, right? Uh, why is it that God needs a dead, bleeding sacrifice on an altar? What is it? Uh, and so he unpacked that. It was great. And if you, if you missed it, I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, well, uh, this morning, I'm going to jump into the second of the four pictures. And the word that we use in, in Christian circles to describe the picture is justification. But the picture is proceedings in a courtroom. Uh, have any of you guys ever been to court? All right. I am among friends. What we're going to do this morning um, is I'm going to look at justification using the picture of proceedings in a courtroom, which is what the scripture uses. That's the picture that it paints. There's a legal proceeding. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to stand really from four different vantage points. Normally when I teach, I'll have like, uh, my points will be like propositional claims, like you should eat ice cream, right? That's a proposition. Uh, I'm actually, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to stand from four different vantage points and look at justification inside of that. I don't know, I probably have 30 points, but I didn't number them, so you'll just have to keep up. So I went to court a couple years ago. I shot a sublegal bull moose. That was exciting. Anyone here in that club? Go ahead, raise your hands. Come on, I don't want to be alone. The difference between my sublegal moose and your sublegal moose is that I shot the largest sublegal moose ever shot by any resident of Alaska. I mean, it was so big, but somehow it was not 50 inches. It's good to catch up with her there in the courtroom. <laughs> when you go in for something like shooting a sublegal bull, you go in, uh, you go in with fellow misdemeanor class criminals. So everyone there is facing a potential misdemeanor. And so you get there, you show up, and they kind of like, they have some videos that show you kind of what's going to happen and what your rights are, and they tell you the worst that can happen for everyone here who's here and uh, facing misdemeanor charges, the worst that can happen is a year in jail, which was good news, <laughs> and a $10,000 fine, I think. I'd probably be able to easier come up with a year in jail than $10,000 fine. But so they tell you all of that, 
And uh, then they, the judge takes each of the cases one by one. And uh, there's several components, right? There's a prosecution. Uh, when you go to court, there's a judge. The judge presides. Uh, there's a prosecutor. In this case, uh, it was the district attorney. The district attorney for Kenai Peninsula was prosecuting Aaron Weiser for his foolishness and pulling the trigger. I wasn't even near anyone that I could blame for the decision, right? I was actually by myself. I wasn't totally alone, although I was alone when I made the call to shoot it. Eric and I had hiked. Uh, it was the walk-in. So we had hiked five hours. We got on the trail at 9 p.m., got to the cabin at 2 a.m. I shot a sublegal bull uh, at about 9 a.m., and we were a long ways from everyone with no four-wheelers. Anyways, that's a side trail. So the prosecutor, uh, there's a defendant, right? I'm the defendant. In this case, the prosecutor offered a, uh, a, settle, a settlement. You can uh, settle for a $300 fine and just six months in jail. I'm just kidding. Uh, you can settle for a, th a $300 fine. It'll just be registered as a hunting violation. It won't be charged to you as a misdemeanor. You just have to acknowledge that what you did was wrong and you will try not to do it again. And uh, so you bring, your, you bring that, that offer basically to the judge. That's, in this case, that's sort of your evidence, right? Um, my moose actually wasn't a big moose. It was pretty small. So I didn't bring evidence, you know, to make a case for myself. I was actually kind of embarrassed. Uh, so I pled guilty. Um, if I had pled innocent or if I had sought to fight the charges, then uh, they would have brought in the witness, right? And the witness, in this case, is the, the uh, state trooper who uh, measured it, who saw the antlers, measured it out, and, and showed that it was sublegal. So then there is a verdict, right? Uh, the judge uh, makes a verdict, and, um, and then there's the sentence, and that's the whole thing, right? Uh, the sentence, in my case, like I said, was a $300 fine. I had to give the moose away to Ash Moore, whatever Ash, didn't even go hunting. I'm losing my, no, it must be a signal problem. I literally just pulled my tailgate up to his tailgate and slid the quarters into his truck. Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's the image. It's proceeding in a courtroom. The image of justification. So what then is the doctrine of justification? You've heard the term justification used in, you've probably come across it in scripture. Um, you've probably heard it even mentioned maybe from this stage or in other teaching. 
So this is what I want to do. I want to look at uh, the doctrine of justification. What is the teaching? I'm going to move through quite a few scriptures fairly quickly. Uh, and then I want to move to our third vantage point, and that is what is the consequence of justification? And then lastly, what I want to do is unpack uh, in brief what does it mean to walk in the experience of justification? What does it mean to live that out in our own relationships? So are you ready? We have the image of justification, proceedings in a courtroom. What is the doctrine of justification? Let me summarize it for you and then let's unpack this. The doctrine of justification teaches that Jesus died guilty of our sin. And that when we, by faith, are united with him, we are made guilty of his perfectly righteous record. Justification teaches that Jesus died guilty of our sin. And that when we, by faith, are united with him, we are made guilty of his perfectly righteous record. Justification. Let me clarify that the Christian teaching of justification is not a claim against your guilt. It is not a claim in, 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 in opposition to the fact of your guilt before God, nor is it a claim against just punishment, the sentencing, right? The doctrine of justification is not a way of dismissing true guilt. It is also not a way of dismissing the need for punishment. The doctrine of justification is teaches that Jesus took our guilt into his physical body, and then as the punishment for that guilt, he was put to death on the cross, because that is the wage of sin, death. And that when we, by faith, entrust ourselves to him, we are united with his spirit, and we become guilty of his righteous record. The doctrine of justification is rooted in the mystery of union with Jesus, a mystery that it would behoove you to spend a lifetime seeking to understand better. Yes, I said behoove. We are his body. His spirit is in us. In us. His death was our death, and his resurrection is our resurrection. So let me move through a handful of scriptures here uh, in, a, in, a, in a short time. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. He bore our sins in his body and accepted the due penalty or the punishment for those sins in his physical body, he was put to death. Romans 3, 26, so that he, Jesus, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, justification is not the abandonment of required justice. It is the fulfillment of justice. God is both just and the justifier. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. 
By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is not a miscarriage of justice when properly understood. It is the elevation of justice. Romans 7, 4, therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. You were made to die through the body of Christ so that you would also be joined to the resurrected Christ. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You're guilty. You're guilty. It's established. The penalty, the necessary penalty, the outcome of sin, of evil, is death. Like Jonathan said last week, God is committed to the eradication of evil. Death is that eradication. We are justified by faith through union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul If there was ever a man who could make a claim to salvation by works, it was the Apostle Paul. He had spent his lifetime giving himself fully to compliance to the law in order to gain a sense of standing before God. And this is what Paul says, Philippians 3. Whatever was to my profit... I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's talking about his own self-righteous efforts. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, all of that, all of that effort, that lifetime of effort to be a righteous person in order to gain standing before God. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The doctrine of justification teaches us that righteousness is, first of all, God's gift to us, not our gift to God. So, uh, to the benefit of, of the lower age range of our people here, I want to ask a question of the older part of our crowd, and I'll lump myself into that. How many of you spent what you would consider to be a good portion of your Christian walk, thinking and believing 
that righteousness was something that you needed to generate as something to give to God rather than something that God gave to you. Isn't that amazing? That is not only the teaching of the Pharisees, that is the human condition. People ask me this all the time. Why is that, why is that thought process or that belief system so pervasive? Where does it come from? Some people will look to very legalistic parents and say, well, it must have come from that, right? I didn't have legalistic parents. I learned that all on my own. It's the human condition to believe that I must produce something in order to secure favor from God. Righteousness is, first, God's gift to us, not our gift to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. We are in him, united with Jesus. So here's the picture. Are you ready? If we are indeed only justified by faith through the bodily death of Jesus, then my justification is a settled matter. The verdict was issued. The sentence was carried out. The trial is over. It happened in history. It is finished. If the trial is over then there is no more opportunity for the prosecution to bring charges. If the trial is over, then there is no opportunity for new evidence to be introduced in that trial. Now, some of you are hoping that I'll do a tie-in and say something about calling witnesses, but we're not going to go there, okay? So just settle down. <laughs> if the trial is over, there is, no, there is no future change in the verdict. The verdict stands. In fact, in legal terms, that verdict becomes precedent. If the trial is over, there's no outstanding sentence. Yet for many believers, your entire struggle to live righteously belies a fundamental disconnect, a belief that the trial is ongoing, that the verdict has not yet been issued, it's outstanding. That the sentence is probably, likely, only growing in severity. Because my failures only further accumulate. And, worst of all, that the judge is always watching. He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, that's a rough way to live. For many believers, the prosecuting attorney still has your ear. The accuser of the brethren still has access, still pretending as if the trial is ongoing, bringing accusations against yourself that you then carry in your own heart and your own mind. I am guilty. I am deserving of a bad sentence. I guess I can only hope it's not too severe. Well, there's something you need to know about the accuser. He's a liar. In fact, the scripture says he's the father of lies, which means he has baby lies. He reproduces lies. And this lie, the lie that there is still an ongoing trial that you're in the midst of attempting to supply sufficient evidence for in order to secure your own standing before God, that lie is wrecking your capacity for friendship with God. Who wants to be friends with that judge? You find yourself always afraid, uh, guilty, full of shame. And all of, the, uh, all of the claims about kindness and, and goodness and all of that stuff about God, it's just there's a hollowness to it because you know the depth of your own guilt. and You have not been able to reconcile that. I know God's nice. I'm nice, mostly. And the efforts to, to convince you uh, of the consequence of God's kindness has fallen short. I remember seeing a couple years ago uh, just a few minutes of a documentary about some people that swim with sharks. And they said, you know, our mission is to reduce the stigma around sharks. And I thought, towards what end? Honey, I realize I've been carrying resentment towards sharks. And uh, I just always assume they're bad. And I'm going to stop assuming bad things about sharks as I walk into Kachemak Bay. I don't, know, I don't know what the outcome is of reducing someone's stigma regarding sharks, right? They're not going to suddenly become BFFs with sharks and hang out with sharks. I can't even find sharks. 
But that's how it feels when people talk about the goodness and kindness of God to someone who doesn't understand justification. Like, okay, great, but towards what end? You don't understand the severity of my guilt, and you must apparently be feeling better about your own standing, but I'm in trouble. We need a robust answer that properly deals with God's fiery justice. Because he is a judge, and when you stand before him, you're not going to be like, dude, that was so cool of you, thanks. It says that when we stand before him, every knee will bow at the revelation of his power, of his person, right? He is an he is an awesome and powerful judge and our understanding of justification the picture of justification cannot put a dent in that in fact it must uphold it You may say in the back of your mind wait but doesn't the bible say that I'm going to stand before God and give an account Yes. You're going to give an account of what you did with your justification. What you did post-salvation after he did all of the work to secure your righteousness, to give it to you as, by, as a gift. How then did you live in light of that righteousness? What did you do with the free gift of righteousness? How did you live in light of a trial that's been, that is over, that is finished, it's historical? I no longer face charges before God. How did you live with that gift? It's the doctrine of justification. Number three, the consequence of justification. What is the consequence of justification? If you have properly explained justification, it always begs the question, why then should I care about sinning? If all of it's been taken care of, does sin even matter? And the reason I say that a proper explanation of justification demands that question is because every time that justification is explained in Scripture, it's followed by that question. And this is what makes some religious types very concerned. Well, my goodness, if you set people that free, who knows what they're going to do? You got to hold them in a little bit, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I have removed sin as a barrier in our relationship so that we can have relationship with each other. That is the consequence of your justification. 
You're free to be in relationship with me and with others. We are free to love God and to love others, not out of a self-serving religious piety, but out of a pure desire to be in relationship. Galatians 5, a couple of verses. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery he's talking about is these religious people that came in and said, okay, yeah, yeah, freedom, but, but, but chill out. You've you got to do some stuff if you want God to be okay with you. He calls it a yoke of slavery. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for you were called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As long as my eternal destiny is still on trial, I cannot possibly be in true loving relationship with others and God because all of those efforts to be a good person are an effort to secure something for myself. I'm trying to make it past the finish line and not end up in the fiery place. That's what I'm after. He says, no, 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 you're free. You're free. The trial's over. The prosecution was shut down. Now what are you going to do? You would use your freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love that you would serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in that, in this statement, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the only acceptable motivation for all of righteous living. It's love for others. It's love for God, which is why it is the greatest commandment. We have been set free from our efforts towards self-preservation, and we've been set free to truly love others. To say that our justification is a done deal and then to respond to that with saying, well, then shoot. And some do. Well, shoot, I could just go do whatever I want then. It's no different than uh, leaving the altar after saying your vows and saying, well, (laughs) you committed for life, so that's on you. I'm going to go do whatever I want. No, no, no. The commitment of marriage vows is to create space for the free exercise of love, right? My wife uh, grows in her capacity to love in the space that I've created for her to do so with my unconditional commitment. Honey, my commitment to you is a done deal. We're locked in. And you could use that freedom to make me miserable. But it would be cool 
if you would use that freedom to love. God says, hey, what if your, your whole future was secured? What if it wasn't on the line every day by everything you do? What if I said, I've got that. I'll take care of that. I'll secure that for you. What if I did that and there was no obligation left on you? How then would you live? And the person who loves God says that moment, that was such a great gift. Now I want to know you. I want to grow in relationship with you. I want to grow in my capacity to love you and to love others. It's the consequence of justification. Lastly, the experience of justification. We talk all the time here at Church on the Rock about how growing in our understanding of God's love will transform your ability to love others. You've heard me say that. The Bible claims that. Here is one way that that happens. The love of God compels us to relate to others with an acceptance that is not perpetually on trial. To relate to others with a love that is not always up for litigation. I love you not because you have sufficiently earned my affection. I love you because of your inherent worth. 1 John 4, 18 and 19, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He says, I have, I have removed the threat of punishment. You are justified. You are righteous. You have the righteousness of Jesus. Now you can love. Person in relationships not perfected in the love of God maintains control over other people's behavior by making them afraid. I, I will offer and then withdraw my affection based on your behavior. And I'm not talking about boundaries. I'm talking about uh, recognizing and upholding a person's inherent worth before God. That I would value them in the same way that God values them. If you do this, I will make you pay by withdrawing my affection and my acceptance of you. And we learn very quickly in human relationships what kind of threats work in different relationships, right? Because everything's on trial. Husbands and wives, your relationships will thrive to the degree that you both act towards each other as if your love is a settled matter. The trial is over. There is no threat of future punishment. I love you, period. And I recognize that some of you here have been in relationships where that was not reciprocated. And what you received in that marriage relationship was awful and horrendous. It breaks my heart. But I've also seen many of you 
in those circumstances, never through anything that you said or did devalue the person. No action to, to, to cause retribution, right? There's an honoring that comes from God by his spirit because he's taught us how to love even a person that you have to get some distance from, right? It's this kind of love that makes a family a family. I do not offer and then uh, retract affection based on my children's performance. They understand that I love them because I love them because I love them because they're my children and they're God's children and I love them. Invite the worship team to come up. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. When the Christian teaching of justification is properly understood, we are not only able to approach God's throne, We are not only able to approach God's throne with confidence, we're able to approach God's throne with confidence in our time of need, in our weak place, in our failure, expecting to find what? Mercy and grace. Not expecting to find a new verdict. Not expecting to find an additional sentence. Not expecting to find an angry judge. But to find mercy, grace, to help us in the midst of our need. That's the God that we serve. doctrine of justification gives us that ridiculous amount of confidence before him. That undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted confidence because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in me and he was pretty good. Gosh, my prayer is for you. That you would know that confidence. That you would search out the truth. That the chains would be removed. That you would experience what many of us have experienced already. And that is the weight of your sin falling away forever. You remember that? Man, what a day not going back. Would you guys stand? We have a couple ways to respond. We celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus through communion. You can do that while we worship. We're going to respond in worship. Um, I'm going to invite our elders and wives over here. If you have any requests this morning for prayer of any kind, uh, the first Sunday of the month, we invite our elders to uh, take that spot there. They would love to pray with you for any need that you have, whether it be financial, 
a physical need, emotional need, whatever it is, they would love to join with you uh, in prayer for that need. You can also uh, drop off your offerings. But let's come before the Lord now and enjoy together as his body, uh, worshiping him. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful. We're so thankful for such a great confidence that comes and can only come from your work on the cross. Thankful for freedom. We're thankful for love. We're thankful for hope. I only pray this morning that we in new and greater ways would walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, guys. This, um, this last week we were talking about uh, this sermon series, The Four Pictures of Salvation. And uh, you know, we were talking about uh, in staff meeting, you know, which, which one we found uh, we just connected with uh, the easiest right off the bat and which ones we have had a difficult time wrapping our minds around. Uh, and, you know, I think the consensus is with many people that this picture right here of actually being fully justified, fully innocent before God uh, is for most people the most challenging to, to fully, in our hearts, have that clarity for in our hearts before God to be able to come before God and truly be able to say and feel, I'm innocent. I'm fully innocent. And yet that's the thing that he has done for us. So what I want to say is that God is not bound by time, and yet in time works in moments on our behalf, both on the cross and this morning, if he's working on your heart in this moment, that he wants to work in that moment. So don't let today go by if God was moving in your heart or brought some clarity to your mind. I want to encourage you, take the step forward to respond to what God wants to do this morning, or even something you felt God say or speak to you for someone else to say yes and to take the step that he has provided for you.